Welcome to the Mindful News Podcast. And today we speak with the Mindfulness and Politics practitioner, Chris Ruan, and the Honorary President of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Mindfulness. All of our other relationships with our loved ones, uh, our friends, people in our community, even people we dislike, and the planet. Dare I say, you're a bit woolly, the universe. We need to be connected. I think we've lost that connection. Johan Harry, I don't know what it's behind me somewhere, uh, wrote a great book called uh, Lost Connections. And I think we have become lost as a society, in the West especially. And I've often thought, what is it about mindfulness that has kept me going now for 14 or 15 years? And I think it probably, when they said this, it was a bit enlightening three years back. And I think it is that that calming side of it, mindfulness, it's, uh, that settles me. So I think that's the connection. I have got energy, I've got passion, perhaps too much. The greatest gift you can give to a child at Christmas isn't presents, it's presents. Your, your actual presence. And people know, you, and you see it in politics, you know, uh, I slag off any uh, former colleague. You know the person when you're looking at them like that and their eyesight is just to the left of your shoulder. Is he more important than the... Is, you know the people who are not present. Is it time for a Mindful Planet paper taken in the best research from around the world? And one of the things I've done when, I, when I've explained it, uh, chair of a chairperson, of the Mindfulness Initiative Global Network. There's 50 countries that are trying to introduce mindfulness into their legislatures. And I'm talking to people in Africa and saying, you know, this is uh, Western science has proven this, and you know, it's Buddhist. They say, yeah, that's fine, Chris, Western science, Eastern philosophy. What about the Southern aspect? What about the aspect of Ubuntu? Or the village raises the child? Or community? Or the Lakota Indians in America, the indigenous First Nation people? who have the seventh generation principle that when they make a political decision, they don't think of themselves or the children or the grandchildren, the ones that are alive. They go down seven generations. And that has had political influence. In Wales, we were the first country in the world to have a future future generations commissioner. The UN said this is best practice in the whole of the world. Chris Ruan spent 21 years as a national politician 10 years before that as a local politician, and in that time he has seen society getting worse, firsthand in his surgeries and wards he worked in, and also his former constituency, where more than half suffered from mental illness. Chris has been incredible in getting politicians and their government mindful, and there are now 50 countries at the government level teaching mindfulness. And Chris is really at the forefront of making this happen, from using breath techniques in school in the 80s, to becoming the founder and honorary president of the all-party parliamentary group for mindfulness. Chris is calling for a mindful planet. And as he quotes, that depression will be the biggest burden on this planet by 2030, not mental health. Chris has beautiful anecdotes, metaphors and analogies for days and his passion to spread mindfulness through politics is inspiring. We also spoke with Jamie Bristow on our last podcast, who's all about mindfulness in politics too. So if this subject interests you, do also check that out. If you enjoy this content and want to see more episodes of this elk, please follow, like, share some love. I'm your host, Gi Hung, on our continuing mission to help as many people as possible. If you enjoyed the conversation and benefit, share it and pay it forward. I'm releasing more courses and I've uploaded more meditations and all the podcast archives can be accessed at the mindfulnews.uk website. Just first of all, Chris, you know, thank you so much for doing this. Um, as I mentioned, been following your, your work and, you know, you are an inspiration, especially those mindfulness geeks 
in the community <laughs> that uh that are just like fascinated in in the way that it's becoming more more well known in, in all the fields like you mentioned in the universities and in, in the magazines in education and stuff and you know your name has been one that's been a, been associated with that along the way so you know, over the years on, on this podcast as well, we've had some incredible people like William Kuchen, who has up the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, right. and, and John Kabat-Zinn, yeah. who I know is a friend of yours. He's actually he's become a really good friend of mine as well. We've had him like five, six times now on the podcast over the years. And But you're often accredited with the popularity of mindfulness in politics, government in the UK, but also worldwide. You work to educate and inspire leaders and helping to make an impact where it really matters, like with policy and the decision makers. And I look forward to digging into that a bit today. But Chris, what do we need to understand about your younger years to get an insight into the man that that you are today? Let's begin there. Younger years, well, I grew up on a council estate in in real. I'm in real now doing this uh, Uh, this podcast with you. So I grew up in a council estate with a large extended family uh, from a close-knit community called the Rezo, the Reservation. That was the nickname of the of the council estate. I went to a, a Roman Catholic school at the age of three uh, and a senior Roman Catholic school at the age of 11. I went back there to teach when I was 23 in the primary school and ended up there for 15 years and being the de- vice principal, the deputy head teacher there. I had uh, one of five kids from a big family, 45 cousins on the estate. So and those were just the Welsh cousins. I had 20 Irish cousins as well. Wow. So, uh, wow. so the community has always meant a lot to me. Uh, and I've seen the diminishing of community and volunteering over the years and that social connectivity. So as well as the other mindfulness, or it's not as well as part of the mindfulness, I'm currently chair of Denbyshire Voluntary Services Council. Denbyshire is a county of 100,000 people trying to get people to volunteer, that social cement that binds us together in an isolated, atomized, individualistic society that we've become over the past 40 years. I think we need to bring people back together. I think we need to bring ourselves back together, connection with the self. Yes. That is the foundational, all of our other relationships with our loved ones, uh, our friends, people in our community, even people we dislike, and the planet. Dare I say, you're a bit woolly, the universe. We need to be connected. I think we've lost that connection. Johan Harry, I've got it behind me somewhere, uh, wrote a great book called The Lost Connections. And I think we have become lost as a society in the West, especially. I think other countries are copying the West and becoming equally atomized and isolated. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They have intergenerational living. They have that community. They have extended families. Yes. Something precious. Uh, which should be protected, and uh, I will be doing my bit to to evangelise on that. And, yeah, but mindfulness is your primary work, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. community as well. Yeah, so, do you have like a, a sense of mission about you? Then you know, you know, being a teacher and giving back, and then in politics for so many years, and with this mindfulness, is, is there this sense of mission about you? I think that is. Uh, I've been passionate. That the first job I had was when I was seven, and my elder, my elder cousin, he was three years older than me, he was 10. And we used to go down to Real Railway Station in 1965 and uh, collect people's cases. People didn't have cars in those days. So they yeah. would arrive, 14 carriages long, these trains, <laughs> out with big families, loads of cases. Say, carry your cases, sir. Uh, so me and my cousin would take them off. The second job was at the age of nine on a fairground on Hooker Duck. And, uh, and my third job was in a fish and chip shop. My fourth job was in Woolworths. And every job I've had, I've, Loved it. And I've, mm, okay. I've said, I, I will, uh, you know, I was prepared to work 
without being paid when I was nine, because you know, it was just out there being out there. And, yes. Uh, so yeah. I have had a passion right from the my earliest job in university. And one of the uh, uh, Michael Griffiths, who is the was the mindfulness initiative chair in uh, Ireland, said, "Chris, you have an energy about you." And I thought that's very nice. And I was talking to Jamie Bristow and my wife after uh, the launch of some mindfulness initiative document three years ago. We were having a cup of tea downstairs. And Jamie said, your energy, Chris, is ADD. (laughs) (laughs) ADHD. And my wife said, you can drop that H. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You had the H when he was younger. So I'm not sure if the passion and the energy does come. Because as my uh, 24-year-old daughter would say, it's because I'm neurodiverse. Yeah. And I've often thought, what is it about mindfulness that has kept me going now for 14 or 15 years? And I think it probably, when they said this, it was a bit enlightening three years back. And I think it is that that, that calming side of it, of mindfulness, it's, uh, that settles me. So I think that's the connection. I have got energy, I've got passion, but I'm yeah. too much. Sometimes I rabbit on. <laughs> but, but I think that that's, that that's a beautiful part in you, the way that you deliver this and the way that you communicate it, because, you know, they say in sales, like people don't just buy from the, the product. It's, it's the emotion, it's how they're feeling, right? And if you, yeah. the way that you come across and you share that this message, yeah. and then the action for happiness spirit is that the message is very much doing good feels good. You know, is that part of it? It, it is. And it's, I mean, it's said in all wisdom, wisdom traditions, uh, you know, karma or what you, what you sow. Give out into the world, yeah. You shall you give out, you get back. It is in giving that we receive. So there are, and it's there in every wisdom tradition, every, you know, the Abrahamic religions, the religions of the East, but even in, uh, you know, in, in indigenous religions or indigenous ways of life and being. Yeah. I mean, we, we Darwin didn't actually say it was the survival of the fittest, or he didn't actually mean it was a survival. It was the survival of the fittest and most social. Mm. Those who could communicate on the savannah. It wasn't one man or one yeah. woman that went out to fight a, a mammoth. Yeah. It was one team. And if you knew that you could trust this person and they could trust you and you could communicate to them and you, mm-hmm. you could get round and set the trap, then, you know, a three-fourths on mammoth could be brought down by a group of uh, men or, or women. So yeah. uh, I think that is important. Yeah. Well, a quick shout out to Jamie Bristow. He was, you know, we actually dropped our episode with him yesterday. I know that he's in a retreat at the moment, so he wasn't able to respond. In retreats, yeah. respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so shout out to, to Jamie. Now you call you often refer to mindfulness as a gift, right? So can you can you explain? You know what is mindfulness to you, and why did it become something so important for you? Well, I first came across meditation, not mindfulness, in 1987 when I was I mentioned the school that I taught in that I went to when I was three, and the school was being inspected back in 1987. I'd been working there for five years. I was uh, 29, and the school was being inspected, and the whole staff got legitimate that and been inspected for. 10 or 15 years. Very scary experience. They had detected this, these nerves in the staff. So we called in the school nurse and she did meditation, just about the breathing in and out, and then the tension and the release throughout the body. But it wasn't the mindfulness. It wasn't watching your thoughts and bringing them back and so on. And it wasn't the, the Dharma that goes with it or the, the MBCT, the, the way you look at the world, the, the, world, the cognition. But I, I got an immense amount from that, just meditation. And then I used it with the children in my class. These children are like 44 now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And uh, I would use it to calm them down as they came in from a wet and windy playtime. And just like one minute of, of sitting, of breathing, of stilling yourself and centering yourself, 
can raise that attention level. They, they, they weren't looking all over the place. They centered themselves, and then their concentration was there. Yeah. So I use it for that. I'd use it. It was a Catholic school. I'd use it uh, with visualizations. Ignatius Loyola, the, the, the Jesuit, he developed visualizations in the in the Catholic Church five hundred years ago when yeah. he was recovering from wounds in a war. Uh, so I'd use elements of that. Tell them a story from the Bible that calm them down. Yeah. The breathing. Start the story. Imagine yourself on the Lake Galilee. Can you smell that salt? Can you hear those flapping sails? Can you feel your set, your, your feet in the hot sand? And, and by planting the children in that story, the responses I got back from them were tremendous. Yeah. So they weren't looking all over. They had their eyes closed. They, they were in that story. Yeah. So I'd use, I'd use it for creative writing. We'd go outside. We'd use all of our senses. We'd touch the blade of grass. We'd do it with our fingers. We'd smell it. So I, I found out a, a great aid in school. But I came across mindfulness about 15, 14, 15 years ago when I was helping my daughter, Seren, uh, with her uh, comparative religious homework. Yeah. Buddhism, I knew a little bit about. I didn't realize the centrality of the mindfulness meditation aspect of it. So I started to download podcasts from Spirit Rock, Gil Fronsdal, uh, Spirit Rock in California. And I had 300. It was at my old podcast, iPod, I had in those days. The old ros rosary. Um... Rosary yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I had that and I put, it, put my earplugs in and listened to it on the way down. So, and I'd do the meditation. And listen to the Dharma talks as well. And, uh, and I think that's it being important for me. Sure, it's for other people too. Yeah. Not just the, the, the practice, the sitting, but actually doing that, being present when you're walking around or mm -hmm. when you're doing your walk or work or when you're talking to somebody. But also that kind of intellectual side, that philosophical, dare I say, I don't use this word in, you know, when I'm talking to atheists, but the spiritual side of it as well. It's, it's, it's been a learning curve for me. I'm a practicing Catholic. Or perhaps I'm a Kabu Catholic Buddhist. <laughs> so ha has it helped strengthen your faith? It has, and it's switched me on to the Catholic meditators. And it's it's made me realise what a fine tradition of, of meditation, of centering, of contemplation that there is. I mean, Jesus went out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, he must have been meditating by himself. The Desert Fathers, when the Roman Empire adopted the Christian Church, mm. Catholic Church, Christian Church, there were many within that church who thought that the religion had been politicized and used and commercialized, and they left and they went out into the desert, the Desert Fathers, 400 AD. So they had a, a contemplative, uh, meditative tradition there. Also, in, in the monasteries, they used meditation, and Ignatius Loyola did the visualizations. And in the 20th century, you had people, philosophers and theologians uh, like Thomas Merton, uh, great uh, Catholic priest. Uh, you've had Richard Raw, who's still alive. He's been on for 80 now. And I get a daily meditation from him. Mm. It's something to just unlatch onto. Yes, he yeah. did a big gratitude a couple of weeks back and the insights that he's got on that. There's Anthony Mello from India. Mm. Who else is there? There's, oh, there's John O'Donoghy, Irish Catholic priest. Used to be my cousin's uh, priest in Salt Hill in Ireland. Uh, wrote beautiful poetry, a meditator. Yeah. Eating County Clare. So that it, it's made me awake and aware of my own spiritual tradition. Yeah. Thank uh, mindfulness for doing that. And I'm yeah. still on that journey. Yes. Discovered. And, and it's because I, I was actually born and raised um, Protestant, then baptized at 11 as a Catholic. And I, I just remember just th this guilt of, you know, when I was praying. The, oh, we have A levels in that. Yeah, the, the, the Catholic guilt, right? The and then we have, we have A levels in it. But I think the beauty of mindfulness, and like if I could go back to my younger self, it's that 
you know, you're not necessarily your first thought, right? And that's why I think mindfulness, regardless of religion, plays an amazing role because whatever religion you have, when you're praying, that's your personal time where you're connecting to your God or to, to, to whatever you want to call it. How better is it when, because we all know those especially that pray regularly know that the mind wanders, right? So you, you have the best intention and dear Lord or dear God or whatever, then you start speaking, I'm a bit hungry now. Then, you know, then <laughs> how, how disrespectful is that? You know, imagine you were actually in conversing with God and you all of a sudden, oh, that meeting tomorrow. You know, oh God. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, no, well, you're talking to God. So the ability to notice that and then to yep. bring yourself. So if you have a five minute prayer in the evening, it's like, wow, you can improve the quality of your prayer. And if, you, if that's the moment where you're connecting with whatever God it is that you, that you believe that you are connecting with, rather than having, you know, 20% of it being you lost in thought. What if it's now 15% that you're lost? And then and slowly they, the connection... The actual figure is 47%. Oh, really? is, uh, there's actually actual figure. Okay, interesting. There's actual figure. Harvard University did a... I'm not sure if it was... Uh, was it Daniel Goleman or Daniel Kahneman? They did the research in, uh, I think it was 2010, and they contacted thousands of people. I'm not sure if it was pages or uh, texts. What are you thinking about now? Yeah. And you had to... And immediately reply. And 40, only 47% were thinking about something in the present moment. Yeah. The rest yes. were thinking about things that happened in the past, things that they're, they're planning for in the future. Yes. Yeah, yeah. John Kabat-Zinn has used this in the past. He said, that's half your life that is wasted. Yeah. And you, you said the ability to bring yourself back to the present moment. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, to, to do that. It's not just an ability. It's a gift. It's a godsend. It's, uh, you know, if you can get rid Regain our. Well, John calls it a John calls it a superpower almost. It, a superpower, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it is literally because it, it highlights the almost this metaphorical prison that we're living in. Because it's not just reduce stress. Hey, do this, and you're going to feel a little bit better. And you know that the worry that you have before your big meeting, use this to alleviate it or to not worry as much of the future. It's like it actually goes so much. It's more profound than that. It's like, well, no, you're living most of your life in thought, or at least half of it, in thought. Yeah. And if in the moment you said, do you want to be thinking at that time? You'd probably say no, right? So not only are you in living in thought, but you're living against what you would actually want to be doing. You're not in line with what it is that you'd actually want. And most people don't yep. even know that it's going on. So it's like this mindfulness actually gives you the choice that you ever knew, that you didn't know you have to live a life. If, if you want to plan, that's all well and good. If you yes. want to say, yep. but you should be fun, fully present for that planning. Yeah. If you want to go back to the past and look at photographs, be fully present. Exactly, yeah, yeah. For your past, be present for your future, but most of all, be fully present for your present. And what's that uh, saying that, you know, the, the greatest gift you can give to a child at Christmas isn't presence. Yeah. It's presence, your, your actual presence. And people know, and you see it in politics, you know, I slag off any <laughs> uh, former colleague. You know the person when you're looking at them like that yeah. and their eyesight is just to the left of your shoulder, Yes. Is he more important than this? Yes. You know the people who are not present, and you know the people that are present, and you and that's what they say about the Dalai Lama, people who talk to him, he is fully present. Yes. And you know it, great people of history, quite often they they have they become great because they have that presence. Yeah. You look at Martin Luther King and Gandhi and uh, Nelson Mandela, you feel special in their presence. And most of them, the Dalai Lama and yeah. Pope Francis. You know, what a godsend. Yes. <laughs> a lovely, lovely man. You know that they have presence. And uh, yeah. to be present, to have presence, you need to be present. And they also say that's the greatest gift you can give to anyone, period. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I need to children at Christmas, but it's like to be present, truly present for someone that that is, you know, yeah. one of the biggest gifts you can give. And, and it's something to be aimed for. And it's but not not to give yourself a kick up the backside if if you don't get it. It's that non-judgmental. Exactly. Not my daughter. Yes. My mind does wander like that, and they will gently remind me, Dad. You're not listening. So I don't want yeah. to sound as though I'm the supreme being. I'm as gullible as uh, infallible as the next person, but I'm working on it. Yeah. Well, but the benefits of mindfulness are vast. But what benefits resonate most, especially at the government level and, you know, with politicians? Because we can literally bring a whole, you know, dictionary of like from A to Z of all the benefits of mindfulness, right? And all the different sciences, right? Especially when you talk in politics and in government, what resonates most there? Where where have you seen the most success in your conversations? And, you know, because I know to stay away from the woohoo kind of, oh, this is a religious kind yeah. of, you know, Buddhist preaching. So no, this is actually science-based, but, but what resonates most when you're having these conversations? Well, when I was asking people to come to our uh, mindfulness training, and we've yeah. had 330 people in the past 10 years. The first lesson started, I think, with January the 23rd, 2013. So we've had 330. And I would use, and it, some might say this is a bit unmindful, it's a bit utilitarian, but it, I knew that if uh, an MP had been in the media spotlight, they'd done something wrong. You know, it's a terrible thing. Your name's emblazoned on there. Your children know about it. People take their mickey out of you. Yeah. You end up, oh, have I got news for you, everybody? <laughs> mockery of you, the scratchwriters. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, it can shred you. Yeah. So if people will, uh, had experienced that, or if they'd had death threats, uh, mm. I would say, you know, it, it's a very troubling time. We've got this practice starting in two weeks' time, and many of the benefits can help restabilize you, rebalance you, work on your nourishment and, uh, and your depletion. And so I, I would. Explained mindfulness from a kind of clinical perspective, a well-being perspective. For others that uh, perhaps weren't suffering, I would explain it from a, a kind of attention perspective. Yes. Uh, it can help you do your job better. The World Economic Forum, I think in 2016, produced 10, a list of 10 skills. They called it the Fourth uh, Industrial Revolution 21st Century Skills, and it's 10 yeah. skills, and they update it. And I can't remember them all, but emotional intelligence. I thought that it would be like science, engineering, computer, robotics. It's not. All of them were gifts of the mind. Emotional intelligence, yeah. cognitive flexibility. Mark yeah. Williams describes that as the workbench of the mind. To hold mm. a thought and then to look at it from different perspectives. Not to write things down, but to, to approach it and look at it from different. Cognitive flexibility, negotiation, team building. So yeah. mindfulness, to one degree or another, can help each of those top 10 skills. So I would use that, especially in the latter years, since 2006, I've shown that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help you those skills. Uh, yes. And some I knew came from a Buddhist perspective or a uh, meditative perspective for, for, uh, in the Christian churches or mm. Jewish church or uh, Hindus. And I would explain things from a kind of spiritual perspective. But yeah. in, the, in the main... I would leave that to last because we, we live in a an increasingly less religious, less spiritual society, mm -hmm. and people quite often are switched off on that. And Chris Cullen uses, who was our teacher, wonderful, wonderful man from uh, Oxford Mindfulness Centre, and he would say, well, people might come for rebalancing. They might come for, uh, for executive function, for attention. They might come from a spiritual perspective. But what you come to mindfulness for 
Sometimes you get, and sometimes you don't get that. Or sometimes you do get it, and you get a whole load of other stuff. Yes, he says, yeah. mindfulness doesn't come in through the front door. Mm. It bubbles up from the floorboards. Yeah. I, I found that over the years, that, you know, different aspects of mindfulness have been important to me. Yeah. Um, built on, and I've had a renewed enthusiasm for awe or curiosity or gratitude. No, not gratitude. Gratitude I've maintained throughout. Yeah, yeah. Diary, which I fill in. In fact, my latest practice is the 12-step program. I live up, uh, I sleep upstairs, and there's, there's 12 steps down. <laughs> yeah. In the morning, when I get, I get up early, I go to bed early, I get up early. I get up at half past five. Um, at the top of the stairs, I'm going to think of 12 things that I'm grateful for. So it might be 12 of my relatives that have passed, yeah. 12 of my relatives that are mm-hmm. currently alive, uh, 12 spiritual people that I like. 12 books I've really enjoyed. Yeah. My 12 favourite places to visit in uh, in Wales to give gratitude for. My 12, this is this morning, my 12 most beautiful places that I've visited around the world. My 12 best mindfulness people. Yeah. So and just by doing that on the 12 steps down, I take my time, I don't rush, rush it, and I try and feel it in my body. By the time I got down to the bottom stairs, I'm in a, uh, in a very good place. Yeah. And I also keep a gratitude diary online. I know it's better to write it, but I keep it online. And, then, mm-hmm. and it's ended up being the story of my life because I'm grateful for the stuff that I've done in the past week. Um, yeah. I try to get a wide range of gratitude. Yeah. Um, gratitude through art and culture, through relationships, through spirituality, through uh, nature. So I think the wider that the, the range of your gratitude, the yeah. more you get out of it. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, I love the, the whole 12 step and I thought it was more you were going to go down like, you know, like the AA 12 step process or something, you know, but you literally, though, there are 12 steps that I'm, I'm going down. But what's really interesting is that when I work, as I teach mindfulness as well, this, if you were walking down the steps or having a shower or walking to the tube, what do you think of? And most people are like, well, I don't know, whatever pops into my mind, right? And we know through experience just by sitting that whatever is going to be random, it's you know, past or future, or it's going to be somewhere, right? But it's like, well, what do you want to think about? Because if you don't be deliberate, I want to think of these 12 things, then the brain will find something for you. It will give you thoughts. And so most people live their lives tuned into a random radio station where it's like, let's see what's on the radio today. You know what? It's like, watching a video on YouTube and then an advert comes up. It's like, oh, I have to listen to the advert now. It's like, without realizing, well, you can't stop that advert from arising, but you can press skip, Yeah. right? And so it's learning that rather than having to sit with this random advertisement and multiple advertisements, right? That if you had the choice, you wouldn't want to. And if you did want to, okay, fine, stay with it. But if you don't want to, there is choice. And that's the beautiful thing about it because... And it's also not only the random advertisement, but it's like, as you walk to the train station, you have the freedom to think about anything that you want. You literally can think of anything that you want. Well, I'm just going to see whatever happens. And that's just me. That's just the way I am. It's like, no, you can actually be deliberate. You can be the DJ to your own playlist as you're walking to the train station. If you want it to be three things that I can do to be more proactive or 12 things I'm grateful for, great, do that. And not only that, but as other distractions come, you can you know, set boundaries and say, no, I want to go back to those 12 things that I'm grateful for. Not only can you choose the soundtrack as you walk down the stairs or you walk to the train station, but you can also be on guard that as distractions come in, no, my intention was to do this. I'm going to be, I'm going to 
almost protect that and say, look, this is what I intended to do. And I'm going to carry on and do that. So not only do you not have the random radio station, you can choose and be deliberate in the playlist that you listen to and be better concentrated at it as well. What did uh, I think it was Gandhi that said the uh, the thought becomes the word, the word becomes the deed, the deed yeah. becomes the habit, the habit becomes the person. So yeah. if you can stop, well, not stop it at source, not the, but nip it, nip it in the bud, almost. You know, your thoughts, where you place your attention, is really important. I mean, we live in in an age where attention is the new gold; it's the new oil. Yeah, that we used to train people to send men and women. To the moon, mm-hmm. used to uh, it's a great scientific discoveries, Marie Curie and uh, yeah. Louis Pasteur, and all you know, that was. That. And now, you know, the brightest brains on the planet are, are trained to make you click your mouse to this corner of the computer and catch your attention. Yes, to sell you something. Now that that's that's where human development is ended down this cul-de-sac, and it's to sell you goods you don't. Spend money you haven't got on goods you don't need to impress people you don't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Consumerism gone wild. Yeah. And now computers want us, well, not the computers, the people that pay for those adverts want us to spend more. Yeah. And uh, it's addictive. And they know, we tell them through the movement of our hand and the movement of our eye, and everything that we've ever clicked on is yeah. stored. So they know which part of the brain mm-hmm. is activated. And they know our minds, our, yeah. whatever it is, 4 billion people that use the, the internet, they know the individual minds of 4 billion people than those individuals do themselves. Exactly, yes. The more they know that mind, the more clicks they can record, the more things that they can sell them at the right pitch. And the more they know that there's a reaction in the brain as well. They know that how to kind of keep dripping that into our minds, right? Continuous scrolling, never-ending scrolling, and keep us there for three or four hours. Ooh, where did the time go? Who knows yeah. where the time goes? This podcast is sponsored by Be Present Coaching, upskilling business professionals with mindfulness tools. Check out bepresent.uk for more information on corporate courses and guided mind exercises. In addition to the scrolling, it's like once I put the phone down, I want to go back and scroll more. Right? It's that, that addictive behavior that it creates. And that's why the importance of like, ah, I want to pick up my phone. It's that you get a brief, the more you practice mindfulness, you get that little space. Ah, I want to go pick up my phone. I've bought myself a little bit of time. Ah, there's actually space now where I've got a fork in the road and I have choice. Yep. You know, whether it's not going for my extra cup of coffee or not going for the cigarette or the beer or my phone, but there's now a little bit of choice. It's like, ah, do I have to? And even if I don't, even if I still go for the beer, you know, you're still giving yourself a little bit of choice. And the more that you practice, the more you can be proactive in that decision-making process and that it, the choice between the two becomes more obvious. Yeah, it's a beautiful tool. So, so just very quickly, World Economic Forum, I know you mentioned that um, John had gone there. They invited John Kabat-Zinn, right, to go and... 2010, 2011. Yeah, I think he ended up being the most popular speaker. <laughs> I mean, who would have thought it's of crazy, it? crazy, yeah. But having said that, I mean, these are the captains of the universe, you know, billionaires and people who kind of own the planet. But yeah. They're coming out with these skills, which I think if all of our leaders had these skills, the world would be a better place. So John went there and he he sold them. No, but the interesting thing about that is, like when I initially reached out to corporations, it was very much stress reduction, you know, anxiety, you know, such a big impact on your HR sick days. But that wasn't resonating well. But then 
because I too use that list. It's the updated World Economic Forum, the 2025 Skills Outlook, the top 15 skills growing in importance. And, and you're right. It's like, number one, analytical thinking and innovation, active learning, learning strategies, complex problem solving, critical thinking, resilience, stress tolerance, creativity, leadership, social influence, reasoning, emotional intelligence. Number 10 It's like, if you had to tick which one mindfulness can help to bolster, you're literally like tick, 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 tick. So it's amazing because like in big corporations now, you know, to, they're training their senior management with, you know, with these skills, like complex problem solving. We'll send them on a course to do that and analytical thinking. But it's just, it just goes to show the importance that whether people don't know it, that mindfulness is the term or that they can use that, but it's the mindfulness skill has a massive impact on all those things related to the mind, right? That's what we don't hear often talked about, right? It's, it's more the, res- the stress reduction and the, you know, performance versus the, you know. I think it was w- William James, who was the brother of uh, Henry James, the writer. He, he was, I think he's been described as uh, America's, uh, the father of American psychology. And he wrote in about 1901, the secret to a good ed- education yeah. is the, the ability to bring the mind back time and time and time again. Yeah. How we do this, I do not know. And here we are. Well, if you'd have read a bit of Buddhism, it'd have yeah. known, known that it's, this has been going on for 5,000 uh, 5, yes. years. Yeah. And now science, Western science has told us that this does work, that you can bring your mind back. And the more you do it, that's, uh, the more that mental muscle does it in a non-judgmental way, bringing it back, that, that muscle gets yeah. bigger and bigger, that mental muscle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yep. And for those listening, it is something that you can train. Yeah. And it's like any skill, like a martial art, you can't just do it on day one and say, look, well, I've done, I've had a lesson. You can't expect to be proficient at it and you can't expect it to, you know, to well. It is something that one must practice and work on, right? In order to, like anything, to, to develop some kind of, you know. It's not an eight week skill. Course. It's not an eight yeah. week course. That's, that's just mm-hmm. the beginning of it. That's yeah. the beginning of the path. And the yeah. path. Yeah, the way the path is lifelong. Yeah. And it's just like, because thinking never ends, right? Because people think that the meditation is 10 minutes, 20 minutes on the cushion, charge up, and then I'll go for the rest of the day without realizing that it's the actual practice is, it could be quite draining. It's like, it's the practice of, I notice I bring back to, to one kind of an anchor. I notice I bring back, because as John kabat says, life is the meditation. Because yeah. then, then all the thinking that's going on all day long is like, how do you use that to not be the zombie on autopilot mode in any moment, especially the ones that are, you know, discomforting and that, you know, I'm worrying about, I'm at the dinner table with my family having dinner, but yet I'm thinking about the the presentation I need to do next week. So the body and what I'm thinking about are not congruent and not in the same place. And it's reminding us that it's going on all the time. It's like, yeah, do you realize that you're not being present now? You're not being present now. And it's like, the more you practice, the more you realize, oh, wow. And not being present for so much of the day. And then that's where the mindfulness practice comes in. It's like, yeah, let's learn. If we had a timer, how much of the day are you present? And the, applying the mindfulness skill is like, okay, let's let's shrink that timer down. So let's be more present and less lost in thought versus the way that it is for most people, where most of the day you're lost in thought versus being present. So it's a, a, a wonderful thing. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But I just really wanted to touch very quickly, Chris, uh, and thank you again so much for doing this. And it's been a super fun conversation. 
what is the all-party parliamentary group, uh, Lord Layard's involvement in that and your involvement? But it's made some some profound leaps and bounds in the you know in the past five plus years. You know, can you help explain to our listeners? You know, what yeah. is it and, and what, why is it so important? Yeah, I was practicing mindfulness for six years by myself with Spirit Rock and other downloads that I'd done. Uh, and then 2012, I thought I'd take it mindfulness to Parliament. I could see my friends at Woolwich College. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't know anybody in the mindfulness world. So, but I had just read uh, like Happiness and New Science by Richard Layard and The Good Childhood. I knew he was well connected in the well-being world. So I asked Richard to come along, meet up for, the, for a cup of tea in the, in the House of Commons on the terrace. And uh, he was well connected. He got more. Mark uh, Williams from Oxford uh, and Chris Cullen to come down and start the lessons. And I was looking at my old, uh, my old political, uh, on my notes on my iPad, I'm trying to, uh, 1300 there. So I'm going to the latest and I'm trying to get rid of the, the old notes. And I came across the political strategy for mindfulness, which I drew up in, in 2012, before we started the group. And I wanted to get stuck in to policy straight away before yeah. the practice. And I can remember I told John Gabbard's in this. He was at a conference, a Bangor conference in North Wales. And he said, Chris, slow down. He said, you have been practicing for six years. Invite people in. Let them practice. And if they want to develop policy, then so be it. Said, this is a thousand-year project. I thought it was, a, I'm not sure if uh, it's one of those American comedians when he's given a 400-year sentence, he says, oh, no, I'll be a 400. It'll be a thousand, fifty-something <laughs> years old. John, I'm going to be yeah. a thousand before it ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he had a serious point. Don't rush into it. Take your time. And we did that. So about six months after our practice started, people had been touched by it. They did want to develop it into policy. So first of all, we formed the Mindfulness Initiative to help the politicians who didn't have the capacity to other connections to develop the policy work. So we formed the Mindfulness Initiative, which helped the Mindfulness World Party Parliamentary Group. And then we had the inquiry, 2014, the evidence, eight evidence sessions uh, in Parliament. I think we had uh, 80 witnesses and we published Mindful Nation UK 2015. And that was a great document, cross-party left and right come together. It was a conservative government but mm-hmm. five Conservative ministers attended that day. Three of them spoke, including Nicky Morgan and Tracy Crouch and Alistair Burt, and didn't do the usual, which is speak and run. They stayed mm-hmm. around for an hour and they spoke to ex-former prisoners. They spoke to young school, school children. They spoke to police officers. So it was a great event. And that is now, the Mindful Nation UK has now been translated into Spanish, Portuguese, uh, and Croatian, and French. Mm-hmm. So it's something like... I think it's something like two and a half billion, it's the language of two and a half billion people. So it's, it is accessible, it's free, it's online, got the hyperlinks to the uh, scientific research, a brilliant document. But the question I've posed, uh, and I've been on a, speaking in countries in South America and elsewhere recently, is is it time that, that science was gleaned in 2014? Since then, we've had, a, I think it's like one or 2,000 research papers published every year. Is it time now for a Mindful Planet report? Mm. Because in Mindful Nation, we looked at health, education, criminal justice, and the workplace. I think bubbling up on the agenda now is political polarization, political leadership, the skills that we spoke about before, climate change, climate anxiety, developing the right policies. Post-COVID recovery, new 
stresses that are coming, the threat of war and nuclear war and yeah. climate change. So there's a whole range of problems that are facing the world, issues that are facing the world, which would benefit from some mindful insight. So yeah. is it time for a mindful planet paper taking yes. in the best research from around the world? And one of the things I've done when, I, when I've explained that, I'm chairman and chair of or chairperson of the Mindfulness Initiative Global Network. There's 50 countries that are trying to introduce mindfulness into their legislatures. And I'm talking to people in Africa and saying, you know, this is uh, Western science has proven this. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. they say, yeah, that's fine, Chris, Western science, Eastern philosophy. What about the Southern aspect? What about the aspect of Ubuntu or the village raises the child yeah. or community? Uh, or the Lakota Indian Indians in America, indigenous people, uh, First, First Nation people, who have the seventh generation principle that when they make a this political decision, they don't think of themselves or the children or the grandchildren, the ones that are alive. They go down seven generations. And that has had political influence. In Wales, we were the first country in the world to have a future, future generations commissioner. Yeah. Wow. The UN said this is best practice in the whole of the world. Yes, so yeah. can we learn from Western science, from Eastern philosophy, but also wisdom traditions around the world. We send scientists up the Congo and down the Amazon looking for compounds and leaves and roots and berries to help us with heart disease or cancer. Well, how about going, in fact, I'm not sure if we should be going there, but uh, how about consulting with the the way they view the world? Because we've we've lost it. You know, we are in the West now, we are what we own. Them as as now is now. Yes. So just, just two more questions before we end the podcast. I know you speak very highly of Tim Ryan's book, and I think what you liked about it the most is this, you know, it's eight things people can do to take action, right? So it's not only here's some great information, you know, but if you want to take action, here's what you can do. So, you know, what should our listeners that believe in this and, you know, believe in mindfulness and they want to see it, you know, be part of the education system, they wanted to see it in, in government. Where's the listeners that believe in this focus their priorities? Yeah. And then what actions do you suggest that they take to be proactive about it? I spoke to IAMBA, which is the uh, European Mindfulness Teachers Trade Union. Yeah. And there were, I think there were about 30, 30 people that I spoke to from different countries around uh, around Europe on, uh, on Wednesday. I said, you know, the Mindfulness Initiative, the all-party groups, the Mindfulness Initiatives in different countries are all trying their best to take mindfulness to legislatures and the legislators uh, to uh, get them to practice and see the benefits and then develop those political benefits in these different fields. We're doing that at a national level. Yes. But don't just leave it to your politicians because you might wait in a, a long time. Yeah. I think the Amber have uh, like 4,500 mindfulness teachers across Europe these are people that have trained in MBSR, MBCT. They've been practicing for many years. They're doing work. But they are also, they've got to put food on the table. They've got mortgages to mm, pay. Yeah. And they should be able to make a living out of this. Yes. Uh, and the way I explained it to them is that the World Health Organization in 2011, by 2030, the biggest health burden on the whole of the planet will be depression. Not mental illness, just depression. And there yes. are three ways to treat depression antidepressants, and I put a written parliamentary question down in 2018 
1991, there were 7 million prescriptions for antibiotics, antidepressants. By 2018, I think we've gone up to 70 million. Okay, so but antidepressants have their role, but they have their limitations. The yeah. second way is talking therapies. And it takes seven years to train a psychiatrist, yeah. psychologists and counsellors yep, yep. a long time. And those waiting queues for, to, 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 uh, for them are getting longer and longer, even in the rich West. And the third yeah. way is through mindfulness. And mindfulness has been scientifically proven for repeat episode depression since 2004. It's been in the health services of the United Kingdom, Sweden, Canada, and the U.S., for well, for some of them for 18 years. It is cost-effective. Yes. It can teach 25 people uh, as opposed to sort of the one-to-one. It put, there is agency for the individual. They have control they have of their own destiny, destiny, their own choices. It is scalable. COVID taught us that. John Kabat-Zinn was talking to 25,000 people mm. on 90 yeah. bases around the world. Yes. It is uh, scalable. And it's not just for the 25% who are suffering, you can get the person who's depressed back to normal. If they follow that path, it can lead to thrive, yeah. To yeah. human flourishing and, and human thriving. The uh, shift of the bell curve you're talking about. The, it's the, like the, that's the, the bell curve, Felicia yeah. Puppet and others have described, you know, you don't just get the people who are under the uh, the, the bottom of the yeah. Of yeah, it's every yeah. Shift the whole bell curve. The, the whole, the whole bell curve shifts, yeah. So the average baseline, it all yeah, fits positively, yeah. Those are the three ways of dealing with depression. And mindfulness is, and you have the lobbies. You have the pharmaceutical lobby, who back in 2009 was spending £20 billion pound a year on yeah. PR, mm-hmm. chief government relations. You have the professional organisations who do a fantastic job for psychiatrists and psychologists, the Royal Societies for Psychologists and Psychiatrists, American Psychological Association, American uh, Psychiatric Association. They do a fast, fantastic job. Mindfulness has got next to nothing. The Mindfulness Initiative, a few active politicians, the Amber in, your, in Europe, Bamba in the UK. And we, you know, if mindfulness was a drug, we'd all be millionaires because it would yeah. be promoted and, and, mm-hmm. and taken up. Yep. And people are suffering. And those queues are getting longer. The antidepressant tablets are taken more frequently. And here is the intervention, which has the nine positives that I outlined there. Yeah. Probably more, probably more as well. So my goal is to try and work with politicians and advocates around the world to try, take that mindfulness to those legislatures. I think it's been introduced into 14 so far. Yeah. And we went the first in the UK. Uh, Anne-Marie Broden, a politician on the right, took it to the Swedish Parliament in 2011. Tim Ryan took it to the US Congress in 2012. Yes, yeah. Took it to the, Richard Layard took it uh, to the United Kingdom Parliament in 2013. But what's interesting, n- none of us knew what the other was doing. Ah, so there so were all politi- independent thought and, yeah. Three politicians in two continents, in three countries, over an 18-month time frame, had decided to take mindfulness to their legislatures. Something was in the air. Something was in the zeitgeist. So I just want to respect your time. And so final question, what matters most to you, Chris? Matters most as I journey through life and spent 21 years as a politician, uh, sorry, as a national politician in the parliament and 10 years before that as a local politician. 
I know that there are great stresses and strains in society, and I know that that is getting worse. And I saw people firsthand in my surgeries who were suffering. There are wards in my former constituency where half the people are suffering with mental illness, diagnosed mental illness. And I see this day in, day out. I read about it in the press. And I know that there is a gift out there, a gift that's hit me, which hit you and many people, a gift that can be taught, and the gift that can be developed and become part of a lifelong habit. Like That's a precious gift. People don't know about it, or not enough people know about it. Yeah, It needs to be taught in a proper way by qualified teachers who have a passion to deliver that, um, to promote that human flourishing and to diminish yes. So that's what means the most to me to promote flourishing, diminish suffering. Beautifully said. And, you know, again, such an honor and a privilege to have you, Chris. And I will help to support, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, wherever you may appear, be sure that that there are masses of people that just love what you're doing and want to, to emulate this great work and help to share this gift to the world. So have a wonderful evening, have a wonderful Christmas, and I'll be in touch very soon. Thank you very much. As we say in Wales, and it's Christmas time, so Beautiful. Thanks for making it this far and showing your support and love to the podcast. A big thanks again to Be Present Coaching for their support. Find out more about their masterclass mindfulness courses and free guided meditations at bepresent.uk. Bepresent.uk. I'm your host, Guy, and this is the Mindful News Podcast. If you've taken away something from today's episode, please go ahead and share the link with a friend. Until next week. <laughs>